Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Grace Church of Ocala Sermon Podcast. We are equipping disciples who make disciples in Ocala, Florida. What follows is an audio recording from our Sunday morning worship gathering, and we hope that you will find it encouraging, challenging, and helpful. If you have any questions or would like more information about Grace Church of Ocala, please visit our home on the web, ocalagrace.org. Have you guys ever heard the term intervention? Yeah. What's an intervention? Loud and proud, Jess. Okay. I like that. The definition that I was able to look up is to take action to improve a situation. You see that there's a problem, and you take action to improve that situation. Now, when we, in our culture, hear the word intervention, I don't think we initially jump to that mindset, right? Where do we jump to? We jump to actual addiction, right? Um, Maybe some of us have been involved in intervention. Maybe you know someone who has, or maybe you've just seen it on 47 TV shows, right? It's someone has a problem, whether it be with drugs, alcohol, or what have you, and then a group of people come together and then they sit down with that person and say, hey, here's how your behavior is affecting you and how it's affecting us, right? Now, the point of that still falls in line with our definition to take action to improve a situation. We, we need to make sure we understand that term before we jump into our passage this morning. And you can see we're going to be in Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. That's going to be on page 498 if you have one of the... Uh, the um, house Bibles. So we've been studying this idea the last few weeks of oasis versus mirage, right? Remember an oasis is a fertile land, right? It's, it's water, it's fulfilling. So you have this image of Jesus, and everybody thought this there was going to be this messianic Superman, right? We showed you that image a bunch of times. We got that down pat. So they thought this was going to be this conquering king, this warrior with his S on his chest coming in to just take out Rome. That's what they thought they were getting. And then they got Jesus, and their response was, you're not who we think you are. Kill him. We've come to the conclusion that Jesus is, in fact, the oasis based on what we've studied, right? We've studied his work and what he has done, and we have found it to be true. We found it to have saved our very lives. That he has literally brought us from death to life. And we see his work on the cross and how it's affected the entire world. We believe that he is the oasis, not another mirage. We've been studying the last few weeks leading up to his crucifixion on the cross. But we're going to take a step back this morning. We're going to go back to Isaiah 53 and see what God was doing long before Jesus even walked the earth. That brings us to our key principle, is that the oasis intervened in human history because he knew where the path would lead. Remember the image that I was talking about with the kids? The parent who grabs the kid's hand and rips them back, the kid has no idea they're walking into a car that's going to kill them. They have no clue. The father does, the mother does, they can see it. And God, the oasis, Jesus Christ, sees where we're heading in our sin and our selfishness, and our desires about us, and not about what he would be doing in the world. And he reached down with his work on the cross and yanked us back. 
He intervened. He worked, I saw a situation that needed improving, and he took action to do so. Now, maybe it's been a while since you've read Isaiah. You know, maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Maybe you're not exactly up to the context of Isaiah, but we're going to give you a little bit of that now. So here's some of the background. Isaiah lived between 740 BCE and 681 BCE. Basically, just think a really long time ago. Okay, Jesus, um, most people believe that he was born around 6 BCE, around there, right? So literally like 700 years before Jesus. This was during the divided kingdom period. Okay, so for some of you guys that have been studying that with us, remember you had Israel, right? And then Israel breaks apart for 50 cool kid points. Who can tell me the two kingdoms? Ah, yes, that's cheap. You get like five cool kid points. What are the names of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom? Judah and Israel, right? So you have Judah and Israel. Um, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, right? So this is divided kingdom period. Isaiah is mainly speaking to Judah, but some of his prophecies actually involve Israel. Okay, but he's mainly with Judah. And you've heard, um, uh, many of us have heard the story of Isaiah from Isaiah chapter 6. Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. You've heard that before. That's Isaiah. So Isaiah is literally like zapped out of the world and he's standing before God and he says, I see him high and lifted up. And his immediate reaction is, woe is me. Because when he encounters the God of the universe, he realizes where he actually is. The status of his own heart and the people who he lives with, their heart. God sends him. He says, I'm going to send you to speak into the lives of my people. And guess what? <laughs> They're not exactly going to listen almost at all. Go Isaiah, right? His writings are quoted 47 times throughout Christian scriptures. When I say Christian scriptures, what I mean is the New Testament. And 26 times his, his passages that were written by him are mentioned in regards to Jesus Christ. So a lot of the prophecy, we've talked about that, right? There's a lot of prophecy about Jesus coming. A lot of those prophecies came from Isaiah. He was prophesying, as we said, 700 years before Jesus. Is that a long time or a short time? That's a long time. 700 years from us is when? Math, early in the morning, I know. Long time. Cheap, Jesse, cheap. Pastor Michael, how far back is that from where we are now? No, no, backwards. I'm asking backwards. <laughs> the age you learned about in the 1300s. That's a long time ago. Can you name anything that happened in the 1300s? Anybody? Baby? Ish. Uh, no, that's not, I appreciate that. That's not what I'm asking. What I'm saying is from our time today, 700 years back, what was happening? So around 1300, does anybody have any idea what was going on in that century? What you got? No, what you got? My man! Nicely done, sir. There's about 200 years left of the medieval times. Okay? 700 years ago was the medieval times. Isaiah is prophesying 700 years in the future. So put some context on that. Think about that for a second. We hear 700 years, we're like, oh, 700 years, that's a really long time. I have a phone that can call in a nuclear airstrike. 700 years ago, they were dying of the bubonic plague. 
That's the difference in time we're talking about here. It's crazy. Isaiah was a major prophet. His writings are huge. I mean, there's so much imagery throughout, throughout his, um, his book. Read through it and just like, you know, sit back and little bit just do some of this. Because it's just crazy, the stuff that's in there. So what do you guys say we read? What we're going to actually study this morning. So we're going to begin in chapter 52, verse 13, and then we're going to read till the end of chapter 53. Reads like this. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of a child of mankind so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, but for that which has not been told, them they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before them like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. That was written 700 years before Jesus would walk the earth. Incredible. Let's pray. Father, help us to see 
and understand and acknowledge, Lord, what you've done. Baffling. Lord, through the hand of an obedient follower of you so many years ago, you would pin out what exactly you would do to your son because you were in control of it all. It was your will to allow Jesus to die. You orchestrated it, Father. You took our very sin. You took our, our, all of our doubt, all of our frustration, all of our anger, all of our lust. You took it all. And you allowed Christ to take it all upon himself, to take our place. Not only were you doing that, but you had planned this so far in advance that we can't wrap our mind around it. And you declared it. You have written documentation of what you would do to your son. Lord, as, as, as we go through this this morning, help us to be see the severity of it. But Lord, help us to see the grace and the love in it too, because both are there. They are both apparent and they are both vital. Speak clearly to us, Lord. We need it ever so. Ever so, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're, we're going to break down this passage, and we're going to talk about how the Oasis has interceded on behalf of us. We were going to get hit by that car. Our sin leads to our death, and sin is the issue, and he stepped in and took our place. Let's begin in verses 13 through 15. I call this the squared up principle. You like that, no? The idea is that the oasis came to set right the entire world. He would be the image of redemption to the nations. He would be disfigured and destroyed to accomplish his mission. Look at these verses. He says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He will be high and lifted up. Okay, so the word servant here, he's talking about a person, a human, right? My servant. He will be a person on the earth. Jesus, fully human and fully God at the same time. Okay, so where do you get the fully God part? Look right, na- right after it. He shall be high and lifted up. A servant, high and lifted up. If you make notes in your Bible, put Isaiah 6 there. Because high and lifted up is the same way he describes God when he steps before him. I saw him high and lifted up. My servant is high and lifted up. We're talking about this God-man here. His appearance is to be marred and disfigured. We, we studied that the last few weeks, about the way in which Jesus was tortured. The things that he had to go through, the humiliation, the slapping, the pulling out of his beard, the crown of thorns, all of those things. That marred him. He didn't look human. He was disfigured. This image from verse 15 says, So shall he sprinkle many nations. This, this is an image of the sprinkling of the blood. Because remember, you have a sacrifice. And what was the point of the sacrifice? To atone for the sins of God's people. It was to atone. Atone means to cover over. We talked about that when we studied Galatians, right? So you have atonement, which means that 
we have sin, we have this issue with sin, and God covers over it through the shedding of blood, right? So you have the sacrifice. And then what would happen is they would sprinkle the blood on the altar. So just look at the imagery here. Before Jesus, 700 years before Jesus, so shall he sprinkle many nations. His blood would be sprinkled across the entire world. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who's the they? Us. The Gentiles. He's taking, the, 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 he's taking his gospel to the world, to the nations. The Gentiles would hear what they had not heard before. They now understand who God is. We can have a relationship with God. 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. Okay, look at these pictures, right? You guys see the pictures on the wall? Are all of them straight? I noticed Pastor Michael did not say anything. The ladies in the room were like, oh. <laughs> they were like locked in, right? Okay, so the pictures aren't straight. Um, not these specifically, but does that ever drive you crazy? Like, do you ever walk into a room and stuff's a little off and it just, oh, I got is anybody OCD like that? That's fine. They're wrong with that. I wish I was more OCD. That's part of the problems that I have, right? I just, well, whatever. Picture's fine. But here's the thing. Squared up. Jesus came to literally, the world, because of sin, is off tilt. It's off kilter. It's a picture frame that's supposed to be a part of a story that is set up this way, but we're like this. We're completely switched backwards, and it's not looking good at all. He came to earth to redeem the world, to redeem all of creation. And part of that is making everything right, to square it up, to get everything locked in the way that it should be. And he did that through sprinkling his own blood, for giving up his own life. He allowed himself to die so that we can now have a right relationship with him. Where, where are you at with that? There's two people right now in this room. Two types of people. There's people that have accepted Christ and then there's people that haven't. Okay? Hopefully everyone in this room has. I don't know that. If you've accepted Christ, how much time do you spend thinking about the fact that he sprinkled his blood on the world? He redeemed the entire world through allowing himself to be killed. If you don't know who Jesus is, if you've not accepted him, if you're not walking with him, time. Right? We say this every single week because it's kind of the most important thing in the world. If you do not have a walk with Christ, you will pay for your sin. Period. He's paid for it. If you don't acknowledge that, if you don't accept the gift of faith in what he did, and by his grace, you're not going to have a You're going to live eternally set apart from him. But we have the option through him squaring up the world to walk with him. He took that covering over of sin, right? Remember we talked about that. He washed it away. There's no more covering over. There's no more need for another sacrifice. The sin is gone. The sin is gone, Scripture says. That's what Jesus has done. We continue in verses 1 through 3. I love the way this begins. Isaiah writes, Who has believed what he's heard from us? He's like, seriously, are you listening to this story? It's kind of crazy. I call this the suspect principle. 
that the oasis would not fit the preconceived notions of the Messiah. The world would doubt his authenticity and then choose to ignore him. That's how the world looked at Jesus. Really? Really? You're, you're the guy? You're the Messiah? Really? And they had him killed. Because they thought he was a fraud. His answer to who has heard this, who has believed this, is he says, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? God is the one doing the revealing. Imagery here is just so powerful. So it says that he grew up like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Does that sound like Jesus' birth? at all? A tender shoot, a young plant coming up? Okay, we're not talking about literally like, you know, brought in on a chariot. You know, we're talking about born in a manger in Bethlehem. Tender root. There was no majesty. This, there's, there's, we don't have anything of Jesus in those, in those 30 years or so outside of a story or, or two. And then all of a sudden he comes on the scene and he doesn't come in guns blazing. Hey, I'm taking him out. He comes in as a servant. And he comes in walking amongst the people. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not, means literally, we didn't think he was worth a second look. We looked him over and said, not, not, not even worth paying attention to again. That's, that's what we're saying here. The God of the universe is worth a second look. They missed it. They thought of him as just another mirage. Not the oasis that he is. When, when I was growing up, uh, I played a lot of basketball. Right? I, I, in the summertime, like I would leave the house like 9 in the morning, play basketball till dark, come home at dark, and just drink like tons of milk, because that was a great idea. But it was a good time. I, I could play a little bit of ball. Right? And you look at me, and I've always been a big dude. I walk up on the basketball court, and it's like, okay, <laughs> all right, really? Yeah, we'll see how this goes. But I was pretty good. And people would always prejudge me. They'd always kind of say, okay, this, you know, this white guy going to play ball with us. I would play like with the older guys, like the guys who had played in high school, but now, you know, they were like 20, 21, and they were hanging out. And I could hold my own, I could play with them. And it, it would take about a game, and they'd realize, oh, hey, this, this guy can play. And my game was no longer suspect. They, they actually bought in. They're like, okay, this, this guy knows what he's doing. The problem with, with Jesus is they didn't pick up on the fact that he knew what he was doing until he was raised from the dead. Because when he's dying up on that cross, yet another one bites the dust. Another messianic figure is dead. They didn't believe him at all. The problem was Jesus didn't fit their narrative. Does Jesus fit your narrative? Does the Jesus of the Bible actually fall in line with the Jesus that you walk with, that you follow? Or are you kind of looking like, I don't know if I can really buy into that. We esteemed him not. Oh, man. So sad. The, the next principle is this, the scapegoat principle. You see this in verses 4 through 6. The oasis would be the thing that would bear all of our sin and doubt. 
it would be through his destruction that we would be healed. His pain and death would bring about our salvation. Listen to these verses and listen for the R's and the we's. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Ten times the words are and we are put in there. He's taking it all. All of the punishment, all of the, the discipline, all the things that are rightly ours, and he takes it upon himself. It's our grief, our sorrow, our transgressions, our iniquities. All of that is placed on him when he's on that cross. All of it. For the entire world, all of human history, placed on his shoulders. When we sin, we place ourselves in the role of God in our lives. Sin is when I say that I know better than God, I do what I want, I am the king of my own life. And you know what salvation is? When he placed himself in our place. That's what salvation is. It's an inverse. We sin by placing ourselves where he should be. He saved us by doing the inverse of that. It's incredible. He allowed himself to be the scapegoat. Now, the imagery of a scapegoat is important because you can actually get this from Scripture, okay? So if you make notes, put Leviticus 16. Okay, we talked about the goat that would be killed. Okay, so there's two lambs, two goats that are brought before, right? One's killed, blood is sprinkled on the altar, and that actually, uh, that's, that's working on the tabernacle or the holy place, right? That's making things right. Then what would happen is they would bring in another goat, and this, another blameless, right? Not marred at all. You know, everything was solid about this goat. It's brought before them. And then the priest would lay his hands on the head of the goat and he would speak aloud the sins of the people. He would talk about the sins of the people of Israel. This is what we have done. This is how we have placed ourselves above the God of the universe where we have put ourselves in his place. And then that goat would be released into the wilderness to run away. And it was a symbol of God taking care of their sin. Jesus Christ is that scapegoat for us. How are you doing with that? Are you feeling the shame and the pain of your own sin? Are you still holding on to it? Are you like just harboring it in and allowing it to be debilitating for you? Or have you placed it on the only shoulders that are capable of taking it? Him. The scapegoat is the only thing that can accept it. It's Jesus. He placed himself there for us. And that's what brought about salvation. You need only believe that his work was enough. That's it. That's all it is. The next one is the silence principle. This is verse 7, seven through 9. The oasis would suffer in silence. He would remain sinless in the most awful of circumstances. His inheritance would seem to be destroyed with his death. Again, just, just look at the imagery in these verses. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, verse 7 says. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, 
so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Taking on the sin of the world. Just for a moment, visualize your Christ. Visualize Christ. Visualize the groups of people shouting at him, shouting crucify, spitting, all of the mob mentality that's happening. Just visualize that for a second and think about how easy it would be for for Christ, the God-man, to say, I'm doing this for you. To respond in anger, to shout back, say, you're an idiot. I'm allowing myself to die because of your sin. You didn't do that. You remained sinless. Even in this horrific situation, the worst, most awful of all circumstances. Another really cool thing, notice this too, again, if you take notes, um, write down Acts chapter 8. You have Philip, okay, and you have this Ethiopian Enoch, okay, do we know what an Enoch is? An Enoch is someone who's uh, a man who's it's been taken away his opportunity to reproduce. That's no longer an option for him. That's been taken away. It's been removed. Okay. So you have this Enoch, right? He's coming back from worshiping in Jerusalem, and Philip, the Holy Spirit says, "Hey, there's a, a dude out in the desert. You need to go talk to about me." So Philip goes out. He sees this Enoch. He's coming back, and guess what uh, passage of scripture this Enoch's reading? Isaiah 53. So he's reading Isaiah 53, coming back from worshiping Jerusalem, and then he sees Philip, and he's like, Philip's like, oh, hey, you know who that's about. (laughs) You you, you happen to kind of be on a chapter that really talks about this guy Jesus. Do you know about this guy Jesus? Because Enoch's like, who is this? What's going on? And just visualize for a moment, from this, these few verses, that Enoch would not have a family, would not have a lineage, would not have kids, grandkids, which is what everything was about in those days, and for the most part still is today. And imagine him reading, by oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living? Literally, there's no inheritance for you. There's nothing that you're passing on. Imagine you're the Enoch and you're reading that about Jesus. And you're in your mind, you're thinking, man, that's me. There's nothing for me to pass on. And then God, in his amazing godness, shows up through Philip, and this guy gets baptized and follows Christ. The detail in these verses, and again, 700 years previous. Let me ask you guys a question. You're hammering, right? Hammering a nail. Maybe you're walking through holding a big old pot and you drop it on your toe or you hammer on your finger. What happens next? Ouch. Maybe some words come out that aren't exactly completely holy, right? That could happen, right? We, we react. The pain, for, you're like, oh, you have that, uh, And then all of a sudden, it's hard, a lot harder to compose yourself when you're in pain. Our God was in the worst pain than anything you'll ever feel. And he was sinless. Remained under composure, fully God, fully man, and did not sin. He remained silent. He knew what he was called to do. 
and he did it because he's Jesus. The detail I, I think we skip over far too often because obviously I wouldn't have even went to the cross if I was Jesus. I would have bailed out long before that. But best believe, if I'm about to get nailed to a cross and people are shouting at me, I'm, I'm, saying, I'm saying something back. Right? But thank the Lord that it's Him, not me. Because now we get to all walk with Him. Finally, the last principle, I call it the satisfaction principle. This is in verses 10 through 12. All parties involved would be satisfied through the work of the cross. The Father is honored, the Son has accomplished His mission, and man is given righteousness that's not His own. Listen, listen to these verses. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. So powerful. We were watching a movie recently, and the, the, one of the characters said, God cannot be all-powerful or all-knowing. He's one or the other. He's all-powerful, then he can't know everything that's going on. If he's all-knowing, then he can't be all-powerful. It doesn't exist, was, was the character's point. The cross is the answer to that question. Many of us have had that conversation with someone when they've proposed that. If God is so good, how is there fill-in-the-blank in the world, right? We've had those conversations. We've heard that line of thinking. In one act of the cross, we get to see God fully in both justice and love. God in one act has displayed his infinite justice and his infinite love. This one event encapsulates the very essence of God. He must judge sin, therefore he couldn't handle it. Therefore, we couldn't handle it. He asked his son to bear that burden for us. Jesus accepted the mission and bore the burden. So in one act, God placed all of the sin of creation on his son and destroyed him. This destruction would deal with God's justice and also demonstrate his infinite love in that through this act, we may be made right in relationship with him. Do you see it? Both are right there on the cross with Jesus' death. Literally God, the righteous one, the one above all, the holy one, sees sin of the world and he abhors it. He hates it. It's terrible. He's going to deal with it. And how's he going to deal with it? He's going to allow his very son to be destroyed. He's going to place it all on him. And he doesn't just do that. It's not a sadistic thing. He's doing it and there's love there. There's incredible love because we couldn't bear the burden on our own. So you see in one moment, in one act, God, justice, righteousness, salvation, love, grace, all right in front of everyone, all to be documented 700 years ago, and then to happen, and then to change our lives today. 
We're made righteous through his righteous act. We're given the spoils of the war through an inheritance with Christ, all because he intervened for us. Intervention is what brought all of this on. A few verses ago, it sounded like there would be no inheritance. There would be none to pass it down to. And now you see the inheritance, which is us. We are victors with Christ in what he has done. There's, there's nothing to illustrate this. There's just not. I've listened to a ton of sermons. I've done a lot of research in my life. And there's nothing that can illustrate the full act of God of justice and love on the cross except for to just look at it. There's no fun, funny story. There's no, there's no cute story. There's no illuminating story. There's God seeing his creation at the very beginning in Genesis 3, saying, I know better than you. I will do what I want to do. I'm placing myself in the God position in my life. And then there's God responding with, asking Jesus and Jesus going. Jesus responding. He, he, he went. Trinity working. And then in disinfecting the cross. It was brutal. It was horrific. And it's the most beautiful thing in the world. All at the same time. See the cross for what it is. It is the ultimate illustration of who God is. And that's the God that's calling you to follow him right now. The same God who did that. He was satisfied because he was being honored by Jesus. Jesus died on the cross to honor the Father. Okay? He was doing what God had called him to do. Our salvation, although amazing, is a byproduct of God honoring the Father. <laughs> it's crazy. We get righteousness that was not our own through Jesus. It's not just a piece of jewelry that we can just kind of go by. Right? We've taken the cross and we put it on everything. And, and is there nothing wrong with that initially? I'm not saying that that's a bad thing to have a cross necklace. There's nothing wrong with that. What I'm saying is if we're, if we're picturing the cross as anything less than the perfect illustration of God, we're missing the point. And the problem is we all do that all the time. We can't acknowledge what God did because it just blows our head up. And if the God really did that for me, it should be changing my heart. It should be affecting my Monday. It should be affecting how I interact with people. If he loves me that much that he would deal with my sin, the response is to follow him. So closing it up, why do you care? Jesus came to the world looking not at all like what we would expect. He, through the cross, afforded the opportunity of a right relationship with God. The cross is the great illustration of who God is and how to view him properly. In closing, you have been called by God to go into your communities. We talk about this every single week. You've been called by God to go into your communities with this good news. Are you doing that? Do you, do you, really, do you really get it? Because even in studying God's word and going through it this week, there were moments where I was like, man, I just don't get this. I'm still missing the incredibleness of the cross. So, 
we've pointed out that this prophecy happened 700 years ago. And again, that sounds like a long time, but let me just give you a couple of things that were happening in that century, just to give you an idea. Noah, good job on the medieval times, by the way. You ever heard of Dante, the guy who wrote the Divine Comedy? Yeah, that was written in 1307. The Ottoman Empire was founded in 1326. The Hundred Year War between England and France started in 1337. The Black Death, the bubonic plague we talked about, started in 1347. The Ming Dynasty in China began in the 1300s. Most of that stuff is just a fleeting memory of sixth grade history, right? We haven't thought about that in years, if at all, because it's so long ago. We're talking about a magnificent amount of time, and God, in all of his glory, prepared what Jesus would do, knew it, and then declared it to his people, and then said, you know what, hey, right about the time you're just going to forget about this, you're going to see it happen. And then you're not going to get it. Christ's life and death would be foretold 700 years. Not only is this the oasis that actually satisfies, he was described in incredible detail so long before. That's the God who calls you to himself this morning. Listen to his call. You are his sheep. You know his voice. He intervened for you. He took action to improve your situation. Surrender to him. Thanks again for listening. If you have any questions or would like more information about Grace Church of Ocala or the sermon you just heard, please visit our home on the web, ocalagrace.org.